This is Museum People, a podcast that celebrates individuals connected with the museum field by highlighting their work, passions, opinions, and personalities. In each episode, you'll hear stories and viewpoints from a variety of museum people, unsung workers to executive directors, volunteers to trustees, as they help change the world one visitor at a time. And now, the hosts of Museum People, Dan Yeager and Marika Van Dam. Marika, we're in the home stretch, approaching the finish line on the first leg of our museum people journey. I'd like to thank all 10 listeners uh, for tuning in and with us this far. Uh, well, yes, thank you to our listeners. We've expressed gratitude throughout, but it's, uh, it's, it's very true. What have you learned, Marika, during this first little jaunt when I've spoken to other people about the podcast and what they've expressed to me is how interesting museum people actually are. We're actually talking about people and people don't actually talk about themselves right. often. Yeah. And it's a really it's a it's a delight to learn how these people got here. We're getting to know people. Yeah. And I think the power of listening and audio brings that out. Like I can hear them smiling. Yeah. I can hear them wrinkling their eyebrows while they think. <laughs> and I, I I just love that because it paints a picture of a person. Gnashing their teeth. Yeah. <laughs> there they are sitting in their office talking with you and worrying about this. And I think about the people who are listening to it too. And hopefully there's a connection and we're yeah. bringing people closer together. It's lofty ideals. Yeah. Our first interview today is Alyssa Lozupone. Uh, she is with the uh, Preservation Society of Newport County, also known as the Newport Mansions. And she has a very unique position in our field, I think, in that she's a public policy specialist for the organization. And she spends a lot of her time thinking about the way in which an organization like the Preservation Society can really be a good community citizen advocating for its role in the community, and uh, she encourages other museums to do that as well in terms of the language of advocacy. Let's hear from Alyssa. All right. My name is Alyssa Lozapone. I am the Policy Research Specialist at the Preservation Society of Newport County in Newport, Rhode Island. And my role is to be an advocate for the Preservation Society and the museum and what we do in Newport. What does that entail, typically, on a day-to-day basis? Uh, It entails a variety of things, Dan. I have a lot of projects that I work on. Um, It involves going to a lot of city meetings and being a voice and a presence for the museum. It includes community outreach programming, and it also includes when we have specific issues that the Preservation Society wants to be involved in, in the community, advocacy issues. My role is to research those and give recommendations to the staff as to how to get involved. So give me a for example, what are you working on now? You've got a big project, right? Visitor Center? I do. Um, We are advocating that a visitor center be built on the grounds of the breakers. Um, It's been fairly contentious, and we are steadfast in our belief that it's important for the visitor experience and improving 
their enjoyment of not only the breakers, but all our properties and their visit to Newport. So we've been working very hard on getting that passed. What kind of strategies do you try to develop in a situation like that? One of our um, big focuses has been to really promote the economic impact and quality of life impact that the Preservation Society has on the community to encourage them to see the value in what we do and that having more visitors come and have visitors stay longer and enjoy their experience will really benefit the community as a whole. Economic impact. This is sort of, I think, how I met you for the first time. You had put together an economic impact report. So I essentially measured the jobs that the Preservation Society creates, the local spending that we generate, um, the spending we do as an organization, and the direct dollars that we produce for the city's coffers. So that's it in a nutshell. Um, It took about a year to produce, and a lot of interviews with local stakeholders, economists. We created a report that's um, a handout as well as a website, and we've used that in a variety of instances, trying to get the Welcome Center passed. Um, We sent it to donors. We sent it to board members, um, anybody that's really interested in what we do and how we benefit the community. I know you're a real champion of this idea for other museums generally, the museum field generally, to adopt. Are there any sort of tips or hints that you might have for a museum that wants to create its own economic impact study? I think the number one thing is that it's more accessible than you might think initially. Um, There are consultants out there that will charge you a lot of money for these reports, and I know that's hard for a lot of smaller museums, but there are a lot of things that you can do on your own to communicate your economic impact. And the other big thing that I like to preach is that you really need to track your numbers. Um, Just what you do in the community, just keep a log of that, and admission numbers, obviously, um, how many school children come, all of those things, um, be proactive in tracking that information. As you're trying to craft messages for people to uh, understand the impact of your museums on the community, you've probably seen things that work better or worse in those communications. What kinds of advocacy language is really effective, in your opinion? I think that numbers are really compelling for some people. We have some board members and funders that want numbers and graphs and that's all they care about but one thing that we did that we found really successful um, especially for the local community was to turn those numbers into stories so you employ x number of local vendors tell a story about that local vendor and who they are and where they're located it puts a face to the story and the numbers and people respond to that a lot better how did you actually come to this job it's a very unique position what's your background So my background is in historic preservation, both my undergraduate and graduate degree, and I came to the Preservation Society as a public policy fellow. You are also a published author as of this year. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the book project. So the book is called A Passion for Preservation, and it's about um, one of our founders, Catherine Warren, and it's her story about how she got the organization off the ground and rolling and how she really changed Newport as a result. And it's been a really great learning experience for me as a young professional and also the organization to learn about where our roots came from and really how a museum in the 1940s 
change the community altogether and that we really want to get back to our roots because wouldn't it be great if we could have that much of a role in the community again? In your opinion, what is really the greatest challenge facing museums right now? What do we need to do better? I think we need to take a critical look at what we do and how we affect the community and be brave in how we communicate that to the public and not stick to the typical ways that we impact the community, but really be brave and think outside the box. And I think that's a challenge, is communicating our value. Thank you, Alyssa. I appreciate it. You're welcome, Dan. Thank you. Good luck. Long day in the sun Marika, Alyssa makes the case that economic impact is a very significant way to value museum. Do you agree or disagree? I agree, but I think it's only one way. What this reminds me of is this conversation that we had, are we businesses or not? But museums were not created with a dollar and cents metric. And nobody starts up a museum saying, we're going to make a lot of money (laughs) and we're going to (laughs) have... A great economic impact on our community. That's not the reason museums get started. Typically, they get started around a collection or about a significant historic moment that people want to commemorate or whatever the case might be. It's true. When I sit with my board and I sit with when I write grant proposals and when I am talking to someone, I say, we are changing hearts and minds here. We're making a better population. I will not talk to you about dollars raised and dollars of value to the community. It's just... It's not the right argument. But in the meantime, that's not to diss Alyssa and her work. I think that we, (laughs) that's the the language. Well, props to Alyssa for doing this work and for the Newport Mansions to recognizing the need. Well, switching gears then, our next interview subject is Kathy Marr from the Barnum Museum down in Bridgeport, Connecticut. The Barnum Museum was created by P.T. Barnum back in the late 1800s. He's known as being the circus, Barnum and Bailey Circus, and his real claim to fame is he's one of the original museum people. He started the American Museum in New York City in 1842. Let's hear from Kathy. Kathy Marr is the director of the Barnum Museum in Bridgeport, Connecticut, about an hour outside of New York. The building, the Barnum Museum, is actually originally the Barnum Institute of Science and History. It was founded and created by P.T. Barnum. Uh, Sadly, he died before he saw it complete, but it really follows the early philosophies of his uh, American Museum in New York City that dates back to 1842. One of the original museums, right? One of the original museums, the first science center, the first aquarium. He had whale tanks in the basement of the American Museum in the 1840s. They were literally pumping water in from the East River. Wow. Uh, So it's the first time you see that. So it was a zoo inside. It was a wax uh, figure display um, creations that they had going on, perfumeries. The human curiosities that people normally associate with Barnum – they weren't the Coney Island kind of displays that people immediately jump to. Um, the human curiosities could have been anybody from perhaps a giant, but uh, families 
that mm. came, that Barnum actually hired to come over from Germany or Japan, and they would wear their traditional clothing, and their their language itself was a curiosity, and their music was a wonderful uh, curiosity to Americans that right. couldn't travel. But the interesting thing about that is today, that model is called Epcot. Ah. So Barnum knew 160 years ago that these were fascinations crossing all generational lines that he could bring people in to really explore the world without having to leave a very small America at that time. So it was a great opportunity for hundreds of thousands of people in it during its existence. How many things from the American Museum are here at the Barnum Museum? That's a great question. Sadly, nothing. The American Museum uh, was opened on January 1st, 1842, and was burnt down in 1865. It is alleged because Barnum was a passionate um, uh, voice for the Union cause. His American Museum was burnt down, allegedly, by Southern sympathizers. He reopened the second uh, American Museum very immediately afterwards, and sadly, it too burnt down uh, in 1868. So nothing survives from there either. It, it seems as though the tragic uh, nature of what happened to the American Museum is a tradition here, uh, because your story is very tragic in some ways as well. Yeah, yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about it. In 2010, uh, June 24, 2015, not that I remember that specifically, an EF1 tornado um, formed in That's Bridgeport, big. Connecticut. Nobody knew what happened wow. at that so what, moment. So what happened then? So um, I was actually outside, just around the block, setting up for a program, and it hit. We got back inside just in time. We couldn't shut the door behind us because wow. of the negative pressure. We were in the heart of the tornado, so it just whited out the windows. As mm. if you would see, like if um, you're at an aquarium and a filter goes on, yeah, you see right. nothing. That's what, exactly what it was. And it lasted 20 seconds. 30 seconds, and then when you could see outside again, it, w- it was total devastation. So you were here. You I were was at here. the museum. Oh, yeah, yeah. What happened Just then? Just rounding the corner. Well, from that moment on, my entire life changed. Every Everything that was important at 2 o'clock that day was rendered totally unrelevant to the situation that we had. So we had a shift immediately into disaster management and control. I mean, the first thing we needed to, I needed to make sure my staff was okay. Um, and everybody was fine. No public was, um, was injured. And I don't know how, if you could have seen what it was like down here, I cannot believe nobody was killed, let alone severely hurt. So describe the, what it looked like in the the museum. dome was still the dome was still standing. That was my biggest concern because if you're familiar with it, it's a massive timber dome, uh, and it was still up. But the massive windows, the nine foot windows, were just blown out. So the curtains, uh, and actually, you could even YouTube some of the images. The curtains were just blowing outside, and there was glass everywhere. Um, one of the trees in front of the museums did fall, and just just missed um, hitting the historic building. You see a tornado because it's carrying garbage. Mm. And all of that garbage came forcing its way into the building. Every artifact, every uh, historic piece of furniture, uh, the costume textiles, the paintings, the archival materials, everything was covered with a layer of um, accretion and debris. So everything from the Tom Thumb carriages uh, to the papers to the the paintings um, absorbed all of this moisture very fast. And then when the tornado went away, it was the most glorious day you could have ever possibly imagined. The painted surfaces, everything just started crumbling away. 
I am still reflecting back on it. I'll tell you to this day, so now we're talking about five and a half years, I'll see something or remember something and it'll trigger an emotional response. Well, it happened to you again then, too, correct? It happened a year later. So a year after that, Hurricane uh, Irene hit here. So we had to get disaster ready. And I'll say this, just talking with you about these tragedies, you seem to have an awful lot of patience and not particularly frustration. Or am I missing here? Is, am I catching you on a good day? Um, no, no. I could ask my staff. No, I, I, you have to. I, I think that's one thing that... Um, I was fortunate at that point that you have to step back and take those moments to really breathe and understand this is, I didn't, I did not cause the tornado, you know, um, and I'm doing everything that I can to fix it. And I think that, um, let's call it my enthusiasm, comes because I so truly believe in this place. And I do believe that the Barnum Museum matters, um, certainly to this community, but beyond that, it matters to this region, it matters to the nation. So, we have an obligation to get it fixed and there's no time to complain about it i I mean i have my down days there are days when you don't get a big grant that you were really hoping for and it really is a gut punch um but you know i give myself a little bit of time to okay have your little pity party get over it what's next well you've been closed now for five years or so right and do you find that the support that you once had is waning or is this new support because people really want to make this happen yeah it's different I, I can be. I know that might sound vague, but it is completely vi- uh, different. The um, the historic building, yes, of course, is, it's been closed down for five years. But we managed to keep the special exhibition gallery, which was sort of um, buffered from the tornado by the historic building. So we actually are open to the public on Thursdays and Fridays. And then when there's special events or special programs, we can have the public, the community come in and it's perfectly safe. Um, we don't have to worry about it. So so it is an extraordinary journey. But yes, Mr. Barnum's first museum went on fire. Second museum went on fire. The Hippotheron on 14th Street burnt down, from again, from a boiler failure. His personal house burnt down in 1857 it, he is a he is a phoenix we can't do any less kathy if you could roll the clock back to five minutes before that fateful day in 2010 <sighs> what would you like to have known then that you know now oh wow what a great question um again this might sound kind of kind of wishy-washy but just how extraordinary museum community is our surrounding region is and even beyond that the the amazing outpouring of caring that showed up on our doorstep to help you know to think things through and still is happening i i, I my my i already had great faith in um the goodness of humankind but it's unbelievable how people will come together and convene to make sure you know you're going to be okay well good luck to you thank, thank you, you so much Thanks for so coming much. down it was great I never gave. I never gave. Dan, that's a crazy, crazy tale it that is. Kathy has gone through. It's it's like she should either buy a lottery ticket or never play the lottery, <laughs> right? I don't know what it is. Truth is stranger than fiction. Yeah, but like her positive attitude around all this, that's yeah. like, I, wow. It's inspirational. I mean, I I've dealt with some disasters, but nothing on that scale where you have to like, your first reaction is, did anyone die? Yeah.
That's incredible. Well, it's biblical. It's biblical. It's biblical. It's, <laughs> it's like on a Barnum scale. Right. Well, in, in regards to the topic of this podcast, what really, um, what I'd like to hear her say was how welcoming and helpful the museum community was towards her and the museum, which I didn't know that this had happened to these guys. Mm. And it's, it's, I'm so glad to know that other people helped them, but it, I'm also sort of comforted to know that if I had to encounter such a disaster, it sounds like my museum peers would jump up to help me as well. Yeah. Marika, we are crossing the finish line here. Episode 8, Season 1. And I think we've determined we're going to do another go-round of these. Oh, oh, have we? Oh, yes, we have. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Later this year, hopefully in the summer, we'll, uh, we'll let everybody know. But we're actually, we've been interviewing people. We've had some requests to broaden uh, and diversify our interview subjects, which yeah. I'm wholeheartedly in favor of. I think that we're going to have some uh, conversations with our young and emerging professional cohort to mm-hmm. kind of get at what it looks like as you are starting your career. Uh, so we've got a lot of plans for the next season. Uh, the comments have yeah. been very positive, and I think we appreciate the that. First season, we we just uh, went full steam ahead without a lot of planning. Second season, we're being a little more thoughtful. We're taking some suggestions, right. and we're going to explore new topics. But I'm we'll really still excited. be whimsical. Whimsical <laughs> is the word to describe us. <laughs> We love you, museum people. Please keep it coming. Thank you for all of your support. We'll see you in a few months. Save the world. Bye. Bye. Museum People is a production of the New England Museum Association, which connects, inspires, and empowers cultural institutions to provide their communities with deep and authentic experiences. Have an idea or comment for museum people? Go to nemanet.org slash museumpeople to provide feedback, get information about episodes, and learn how to subscribe. Thanks for listening.